Welcome birders, this is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Bander Podcast, where birders talk birding. And this is the first Bird Bander Podcast episode of 2021. Let's hope that 2021 is a year that puts 2020 to shame in every way. Every year as a birder, the new year brings a fresh start to our year lists. There are lots of species of birds wherever you bird, in your county, in your state, or wherever you keep your lists. But on January 1st, Every bird is an FOI species. An American robin or a Canada goose count one, just like any rare vagrant that might happen to come across the area you keep your lists in. And I have to say, it does feel good to start fresh every year. My girlfriend, Marion, has been birding with me quite a bit over the last couple of years. And today, we get out in Pierce County to start our 2021 lists. We buzzed to some of our favorite spots and checked, you know, eBirded all of our lists and had a great day. It was really a spectacularly good weather day for Pierce County, Washington on January 1st. It didn't rain till just before we stopped at about 2.45. Uh, it was really warm. It got up to 61 at one time. Seemed like the Banana Express was coming in, and I think that's what was pushing this big storm front our way. But anyway, it was fun to buzz around and check a few of our favorite spots and, and retick a few uh, leftover uncommon birds from the year before. Uh, so the day started auspiciously for Marion when we went to the gulch right behind the condo where we live. The, it's called Garfield Gulch and there's been a barred owl there the last uh, few months and we went there and I played a recording and turned one way to look and right behind me right over Marion's head swooped the barred owl just disappeared out of sight. She said it just went by. I never saw it. She got the first bird of the year. Uh, so Marion had one up on me from the very get-go but not to fear. We went down to Puget Park, just about a mile uh, mile farther along the uh, the waterfront here in Tacoma, and uh, a pair of barred owls just went crazy, calling and hooting, doing their fabulous who 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 cooks for you uh, call and their guffaw calls. Uh, here's an iPhone recording of that, uh, and this is sort of what we heard. Other highlights of the day were a pair of long-tailed ducks, the Demolay Spit, on Fox Island. That was maybe my highlight of the day, not so much because I got the long-tailed ducks, but because I have a good friend who didn't get them last year. Uh, every year in Pierce County, we have uh, a friendly competition among the local birders to see who can get the most species in the county. Usually Bruce Labar, who was my friend and guest on the Bird Banner podcast episode three, usually in recent years, he gets the most. Oh, Will Brooks beat him once, two or three years back when he put in a really superb effort and broke the county record. Uh, but last year, Heather, Heather Bolish won the, won the competition, but she won it by one species over her husband, Marcus, and they birded together almost all year because his work, he was working from home a really lot, and unusually they got to go out a lot, and Heather had just retired this year, so a combination of her having a lot of free time and him being home to bird with her, they just killed Pierce County last year. But one day, Heather and I happened to be at Dune Peninsula, and uh, Will Brooks was there with us, and Will pointed out, long-tailed duck! A long-tailed duck was flying by, we all got on it, and it was a tick for our list, but Marcus was working on a, phone, on a business call at the time and missed that bird, and he missed it for the whole year. Uh, so Heather beat her husband Marcus by one bird in 2020 and won the 
unofficial Pierce County birding title for the year. Uh, so that was really fun. And today I saw a long-tailed duck and happened to stumble across Marcus at a, a stakeout blue jay that's been hanging out for several weeks here in Pierce County. Really a county first for most of us, really uncommon bird here. And he was there and I said, Marcus, got two long-tailed ducks today. He says, oh, and see, he had been, I think he'd worn a path in the sand at the Demolay Spit the last uh, few months trying to catch up with Heather on that long-tailed duck. But they haven't been seen there all of last year. But today, on January 1st, a pair not far out, just swimming around on the sound. So really cool. Got to uh, smile as Marcus kind of beat his brow about that. So that was really fun. Check out the episode by Marks and Heather, episode number 64. I think you'll enjoy that. Uh, Harlequin ducks at the Purdy Spit, a Northern Harrier, a lingering tundra swans, uh, along with uh, three Virginia rails calling all at once uh, at the West Harding Farms capped a really great day. Well, getting away from my birding day, my guest this episode is Dan Cooper. Dan is a Southern California birder who started birding as a young child and was part of just an awesome birding community in Southern California during that time frame of the you know, last third or so of the 20th century. Uh, that California group really re-energized American birding or U.S. birding and uh, is a fabulous group. I've had several members of that uh, community on as guests and always enjoy hearing their stories there. They are fun, uh, engaging, and I think you'll really enjoy hearing Dan and his birding story and his birding stories. So let's start the new year by welcoming Dan Cooper to the Bird Bander Podcast, episode number 87. Dan, welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast. Thanks for being on with me today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Dan, I heard about you from John Sterling, who's a, a friend who I went on a birding trip to Kenya with and have met on a couple of pelagic trips here and there, uh, and he thought you'd be a good guest. So uh, I know that you, I read your CV on your website, uh, Cooper Ecological Monitoring Incorporated, and it looks like you went to Harvard, but then did graduate work and ended up in California. Are you a, a California birder as a kid, or did you move to California as an adult? I am actually from Southern California. Yeah, I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley and started birding when I was a little kid and then uh, went off to college on the East Coast and just moved around a lot after that. Very cool. So you uh, uh, grew up in that great uh, young California birding community in the in the second, you know, I don't know, I'm not sure how old you are, 70s, 80s, 90s, somewhere in that time frame. That was a fabulous birding community. Yeah, it definitely was. Things are very different now, obviously. But yeah, I grew up in the the analog world of phone trees and uh, non instant communication. I guess you could say. Yeah, it was a. It was a. I've talked to a number of people. Uh, I, I don't think you know Bruce Labar. Bruce is a friend of mine from here who was in Northern California during that time, and I asked if he knew you. I don't think he he knows you, but. I've heard from him and other people, Louis Bevier and some other people that I've met over the years about how that was kind of the golden age of birding. It was just a, a fabulous community. Tell me what it was like to grow up in that environment as a birder. Well, you know, I discovered the, um, I guess it was the Audubon Rare Bird Alert. And I still remember on Thursdays around 3 p.m. it was updated. And so, you know, at 2.59, I would get my pencil and start like jamming the rotary phone to call as fast as I can could, you know, and, and there are other people who knew that who were calling at a time at the same time. And, and that, that phone alert would tell you 
um, all the sightings for the past week. So if someone saw something last Friday, you wouldn't learn about it until that Thursday. And of course, uh, then you'd try to run out to that place and hope it was still there. But it was, it was, uh, it was, it was really an exciting time to be birding in the state. And I think that the birding community obviously was a lot smaller and disconnected. There was a core of people in LA who I became, you know, friends with and who knew me as a kid, one of many kid birders. It's funny about kid birders. There there are always kid birders around, right? And so you sort of Mm -hmm. take, take your role as the kid birder for a few years. And by the time you know it, you know, you've gone to college and like, baby gotten married, et cetera. And you're no longer a kid birder, but then you run into someone in their eighties who sort of still thinks of you that way, which is, which is fine. <laughs> yes. I, I moved to Washington when I was 30 and I had just begun birding and going into this community, there was, there were a couple of kid birders around at the time uh, yeah. and they were, you know, really fabulous birders. And, and the, the, I, I've grown to you know, those guys who are kid birders are now fellow adult birders and there are new kid birders now. And it's a, it's fun how the generations I go by like that. Yeah. So you moved there when you were, yeah, I was, you can cut this out, but I was trying to place your accent of North of New York city, but I don't know if I've got it right. It it is. I'm from Maine. I grew up in Maine. All right. And, uh, went to Bowdoin college as an undergrad and I went to med school in Boston. So I really was in new England until after medical school and then, uh, moved to Washington. And then I was in the army. I was in ROTC to stay out of Vietnam in those days. And so spent my uh, seven years in the army after medical school. And, uh, uh, the first three of those years in the army were out here at Madigan Army Medical Center doing my residency in family medicine in Tacoma, All and right. then I moved back here after I got out of the army. So, yeah. uh, but I didn't start birding until after my residency. So, that was uh, I started with New York when I started birding. Gotcha. Yeah, it's it's funny about when people start, right? So you've run into people here and there who have started when they were were little kids in elementary school. And then some people find it in utero, it seems like. Yeah, exactly. And that they already arrived fully formed at age eight on a bird walk, knowing more birds than you. So Mm -hmm. um, there definitely are folks like that. I mean, I was one of those kids. I think Sterling was one of those kids, Kimball Garrett out here, certainly. And Mm so, you know, we started birding, you know, when we were kind of at the mercy of our, our parents' schedules and, um, you know, they would, like mine, you know, mine would drive me to bird walks and, or, or like my dad, you know, he would take me to a park and he would, you know, maybe use the bathroom, smoke his pipe and kind of wander a bit. And then I would try to bird as much as I possibly could. Cause I knew that after an hour or so, he'd sort of understandably get bored. And, uh, <laughs> I just remember, you know, being in Malibu Creek state park, I was probably like 10 years old you know, Malibu Creek State Park and birding along the creek there and him calling me. I knew he had to go. It was just getting late. It was after the main bird walk. We were, I convinced him to let me stay for another few minutes and keep birding. And he called me over to Dan, come over here. There's some birds here. I don't know what they are. And they were bush tits, just the most common bird in LA. They are a cool bird. Being just furious with it. Like you called me all the way over here to show me some bush tits. And now you're going to say it's time to go. Sure enough, it was time to go. But. Yeah, I remember uh, my wife and I were birding down at Ocean Shores one time, and we were way out, you know, quite a ways from where you could park a car, or anything. And this little boy comes wandering up. He's like eight years old, nine years old, and he's got a 
binoculars and he's tromping around and and he comes up did you see the such and such i think there's a lot of longspur over there and i'm like hey wow good that's really cool yeah are you lost little boy <laughs> oh, no no my grandpa drops me off in the morning and picks me up right <laughs> he, he, he was from seattle his, right. would, his parents would send him down to visit his grandfather and on weekends his grandpa would take him to a certain place at sunrise and pick him up just before sunset you know yeah Worked out well. Worked out great. (laughs) Yeah, and chances are, it's like, we, you know, chances are you're not going to get kidnapped, you know, out birding as a 10 or 12-year-old. It's just not going to happen. People are going to look at you and say, well, I wonder where that kid's parents are, and then just, like, go on with their lives. So, you know, in reality, it's a fairly safe activity just to be sort of poking around a park and or walking on a beach. Like, you know, as long as the kid is sort of mature, has his wits about him or her and the parent is okay with it. It's, it's a fairly safe activity. I think. I, I totally agree. Needless to say, this kid came up to be one of the whiz bang uh, yeah. Seattle person. Yeah. It oh, was, that's uh, funny. Totally cool. Yeah. And, and we've had some other fun stories. Ken Brown, a good birding friend of mine and I were leading a trip in Eastern Washington and we came across, it was a really bad, it was well, winter trips. We call them our freeze thons and they're yeah. just really the weather was not good. Uh, and we come across this car broken down on the side of the road. Uh, and it, it's two parents and they're two birding kids. Hmm. Uh, and they took them over for a b- weekend of birding and the car, some, I don't know what, what didn't seriously broken down, but they were stuck there. Uh, hmm. And we asked if they needed any help and, uh, and uh, they didn't need any help, but they uh, lent us their kids for the rest of the day to, to continue birding with us while they called AAA to get the car. Oh, cars. wow. So oh, that's piled, really funny. So the kids piled into, we had, I think we had two different cars with three people in them and they piled in the backseat of two different cars of a four car caravan and birded with us for the whole day. And right. we took them back to the hotel that night. And that was that. Was, were they with your group or they were just out birding in the same area? That, no, that I would never met these people. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, you know, I, they knew of us, you know, the, the kids knew of us. They knew that our birding group was going to be birding that area because we have a website and that sort of thing. But uh, yeah. no, we'd never met these kids, didn't know who they were, never met their parents, uh, chatted them up for 10 or 15 minutes and and uh, and said, gosh, too bad, you, you know, too bad the kids couldn't come along with us. And they said, oh, they can come with you if you like. Okay, here we go. <laughs> We're off. <laughs> so, yeah, it's funny. I've talked about this uh, idea with a number of people and it, birders tend to be sort of good eggs, you know, you, you know, part of the pun, but you don't meet a lot of just rude, um, selfish, egotistical people in the birding community. Now, obviously it's peppered with those people, but by and large, they're sort of, you know, they have sort of like, a, a respect for the common good. They're sort of up for a little adventure you know, they're just sort of like um, the kind of people who you might want your kids to be mentored by, as opposed to maybe some other hobby or arena where you want to sort of steer clear of a lot of the people there. <laughs> I don't know. I've just had that feeling. They're sort of like, it's like a librarian convention. They're just going to be good people as opposed to bad. I think you're generally right. I mean, I, I usually think of, it's unusual to meet a birder who's a real jerk or yeah. who just doesn't have some respect for other people. Yeah. So I think that's a fair, fair statement. Were yeah. there, were there, uh, you know, adults uh, when you were a young birder who were, you know, really influential and super helpful to you? 
Absolutely. And I remember Dr. Elton Morell. I mean, you know, like a little kid, I just have a, you know, won't, won't forget some of these names. But yeah, Dr. Morell is someone who I would see on the Descanso Gardens Birdwalks near Pasadena. And then he would invite me or whoever over to his house afterward with my dad. And we'd look through his slide. He'd show me his like slideshow of birds that he had taken the last few weeks. He was really mm-hmm. into bird photography. And I think his son, he had an adult son who was also a birder. And that was sort of, yeah, one of these things where when you're that age, you know, the adults who sort of intersect your life can be very influential. You you sort of absorb um, a lot from them, sort of ways of being nonverbal cue type of things. And you sort of learn how to interact with very knowledgeable people as you're kind of acquiring knowledge yourself. So uh, he was definitely one of them. Barbara Cohen led the bird walks at the Arboretum in Arcadia. So definitely her. And then later, I mean, God, you know, I couldn't drive until I was 16, but I was birding since I was five. So in that span of years, there were plenty of adults. I mean, I remember getting driven out to the Salton Sea in the back of a pickup, which at that time was literally the back of a pickup. And, you know, it had one of those black plastic seats that you sort of mount on a crossbar. And, you know, there wasn't room in the cab at least on the way out, because my friend Barry Lyon, who now works for Victor Manuel Nature Tours, was in the cab. And so I was in the back. And I think Barry was in the back on the way back, and I got the cab. But uh, yeah, that was the way, uh, the only way to travel that day. And if we wanted to drive around all day in July in the back of a pickup at the Salton Sea, we were more than welcome to join. I can't remember who it was who took us. I'll, I'll try to remember who that was. But sure, you know, that birding, like a lot of hobbies, I don't know what else, but chess, fencing. If you're a kid, you get sort of pushed into an adult world a little bit, and you have to sort of navigate that world. Unfortunately, like we said, they're all pretty nice people. Yeah, it, it, and and you are in the mecca of birding in that, yeah. without a doubt. California in general, and Southern California especially. Yeah, and so all that, you know, people through the years will make comments like, how do you know those people? How do you know Kimball Garrett? Or how do you know Dick Erickson? It's like, well, uh, you know, over the years, it's just, that's who the adult birders were. And uh, yeah, it was an opportunity to sort of go deep. Or Guy McCaskey, you know, I would just see, I still run into Guy McCaskey. I ran into him the time before last I was at the Salton Sea. I saw one other birder and it was Guy McCaskey, you know, at the, this wetland restoration site and we talked for a while and caught up and yeah, nice. these people Very definitely nice. walk the earth and you run into them. <laughs> yeah. Well, they are icons in the birding, yeah. uh, birding lore. So yeah. Living legends. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and a lot of them are very generous with their knowledge. You know, maybe some of your listeners play music maybe professionally, but I've noticed that, you know, and I play a little bit, uh, but I've noticed if you run into a really good session musician, um, chances are they're not aloof and there's a good chance they're the opposite. They really want to talk with you about music and tell you their stories and right. support you. And they're not like, well, I'm, I'm the expert and I played with so-and-so. I mean, they'll tell you that if you ask them, but you know, there are a lot of just these modest people who that's just what they do both for a living and for their hobby. <laughs> that's just who they are. Right. 
I have had a couple of musicians on uh, uh, on the podcast before. I, I uh, yeah, I'll put links to them in the uh, podcast notes. <laughs> yeah. it, it was really fun. One of one of the, I'm blanking. I'm terrible with names. One of them just put out an album a few months ago. Uh, it was every song had a bird name in it. It was it was, <laughs> uh. it was, it was quite good. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually in the podcast I I played uh, two or three of her songs. So That's that cool. Really yeah. And Andrew Emlin is a, a really good uh, birder from this teensy little county called Wakayakum County down in southwest Washington. He's huh. uh, very, very good birder. But he he plays with the with the oh, Skamania County. Excuse me, not Wakayakum, Skamania County. He plays with the Skamania Swamp Opera. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, and they're very good. Look up yeah. the Skamania Swamp Swamp opera that you can get sign them on YouTube. They're actually really good music and fun to listen to. But I was like, whoa, are they playing with a swamp opera. That's that's really cool. <laughs> there are great musicians everywhere, just like there are great pickup basketball players, because it's so hard to get into the NBA. But it's yeah. it's all and especially here in LA. I mean it's amazing. Like go into well, pre-COVID, obviously, but any bar and you'll hear these musicians that are just as good as you know, any anyone on any album, if not better. Yeah, a lot of times. It, you know, sometimes it's not what you know, but who you know. And, uh, yeah, it's not talent, is it? <laughs> not always. Not it always. Certainly helps. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you birded as a kid in Southern California, then you went off to school in, in Boston. Did you bird a lot while you were there? Sure, yeah. So, you know, Harvard is on the Charles River in Cambridge, and unlike um, the San Gabriel Valley, you can get to a lot of birding areas just by bus or even walking. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, during spring and fall, I was probably at Mount Auburn Cemetery or Fresh Pond every morning. And, uh, you know, classes generally don't start till nine. So you have a, a few good hours to to bird. And that's really where I, I honed my, I guess, my Eastern bird skills, you know, things that you never see in California, like field sure. sparrows or cerulean warblers, you know, those could be an annual uh, thing in, in Boston. So that was, yeah. that was a great treat. Yeah. Yeah, I kicked myself. I didn't start birding. I went to med school in Boston, but yeah. I didn't uh, bird while I was there. So uh, I can remember as a kid, uh, you know, listening to the whippoorwills. I grew up in Maine, and every yeah. spring, the whippoorwills would be singing out behind my family camp. And uh, and uh, it took me, the, but they they no longer are much in that area. No, whippoorwills have, have retreated, really declined. Huh? Really retreated or declined in that area. So I remember, oh. I don't know how many, 10, 20 years ago, something like that. I was back for a summer visit and I said, I know I should have Whippoorwill on my list, but I can't count it because we heard him when I was a kid. I got to go find one. It was a heck of an ordeal to find a Whippoorwill. Yeah, they're one of those species that, you know, whatever the forests have um, been doing in the last 20, 30 years um, has just not been attractive to Whippoorwills. And, you know, there are a bunch of species like that, like wood thrush, ruffed grouse, you know, they've contracted in certain areas, but then they're doing fine in other areas. So overall, maybe they're not necessarily in trouble, but yeah, I, I mean, I hear that a lot from East coast birders that there are certain species that they grew up with that, they, you know, they go to the same patch of woods. that looks exactly the same and they're not there. Yeah. I think, you know, that's probably species specific, but it's also birds in general. I mean, I remember when I moved out here to Washington, going down to Bowerman Basin in the spring, be half a million sherbirds. It was just yeah. un- unbelievable flocks of sherbirds. And now, if you can find twenty thousand western sandpipers, you're having a great day. Yeah, yeah. Numbers have changed in a lot of areas. Um, 
you know, I, I do this for a living too. And, and we've been doing waterbird counts at the Salton Sea um, since 2016. And, you know, birds have shifted around. So we actually find as many shorebirds today as we found then. So in, they haven't changed much. But then the, the the array of species has changed a lot. So whereas before, you know, there were tons of eared grebes, tens of thousands, you know, we'll just get a handful mm. uh, today. So, yeah, it, it, you know, nature is not static, right? Everything is in flux all the time. It is. So, Dan, tell me, how how did your education transform into Cooper Ecological Monitoring and what happened in between? Tell me your career. Oh, okay. Uh, The, you know, when I went to college, I really didn't know that I was going to go into the sciences at all. And in fact, I did did improv uh, all four years and played a lot of music and pretty much all my friends from college are now TV writers and producers and directors. And it wasn't really, uh, it's funny. It's like, it, I wasn't really friends with a lot of biology people, though. I, I had a few good friends who were, um, it, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And so, you know, I directed a musical and, uh, but I, I was also at Harvard, you're like a concentrator. So I was a biology concentrator. So a lot of my classes were biology related and during the summers, I was still a birder, so I was much more of a birder than a biologist. So during the summers, I would get these jobs to be a field tech here and there. So I worked in Wisconsin, and um, I worked in Malaysia on a bird banding project, and uh, just loved that and really thought that if I could carve out a career where I did field work and also sort of learned how to do conservation, like how does conservation work, you know, how do I fit in? because I was just passionate about birds and nature. Um, and I arrived on this um, idea that I really wanted to go back to California. I wanted to just immerse myself in saving nature in California. So the day after graduation, I flew back and then next day drove up to uh, the Kern Valley, which is located in the Southern Sierra Nevada. It has one of the largest populations of yellow-billed cuckoos and summer tanagers in the state and worked there for two summers and just roamed the forest, um, searching for nesting birds, doing point counts, transects, vegetation plots, and really just kind of got to know that system well. And then after that, uh, in talking to people at the Kern, you know, who were kind of guiding me there through life, because I think I was only 22 or something, they really said I should go to grad school if I wanted to get a job, job. And I applied, wrote, wrote to some professors, and ended up going to UC Riverside for my master's and studied the birds of the LA basin. I was really curious about distribution and plants, getting more into plants, and uh, looked at how birds are able to sort of use open space in the basin or whether some species are excluded because there's not enough land and habitat for them, uh, learned some statistics, and then heard about this nature center that Audubon was building um, along the Arroyo Seco, northeast of downtown. And it was an area I was really familiar with because I only grew up 10 or 15 minutes away and wrote to the director and asked if they needed anyone to do some bird surveys, just with my naive optimism at work. 
And she actually wrote back and said, yes, we need a management plan. They've been bugging us to do a management plan. Would you like to come and we'll put you on a contract to do a management plan? So, so I said, sure. And uh, ended up then working at this Audubon Center design which um, team, which eventually became the Debs Park Audubon Center. And it opened, I think, in 2002 or 2003. Worked there for a few years and then quit Audubon in 2005 and just decided to hang out my shingle and do bird conservation uh, uh, at sort of a freelance level. Okay. And that's what I've been doing ever since is, is these jobs where people call me to do surveys and now I've branched into plants, rare, rare plant surveys and habitat assessments. Um, I kind of do a little of everything in the LA area. Okay. I think John Sterling does kind of similar stuff, doesn't he? Yeah, it's it's what we it's it's what we do, you know. It it if you have these skills, uh there is someone who will pay you to do uh surveys and write reports. <laughs> it's funny. And so yeah, John does it. Um I have a bunch of colleagues around the state and we all a lot of us know each other and we kind of hand each other jobs that we can't do or are too yeah. inconvenient and yeah, it's Great. a funny gig. And I don't think we could do this anywhere else. I lived in Rhode Island for a little while there. And I always tell people, like, I couldn't even get an interview <laughs> to do this kind of stuff in Rhode Island. So yeah. it's yeah. very much an experiential skill. And people need to know that you know the system before they'll think of you and hire you. California is a huge state that is incredibly diverse. I mean, you've got wind power, you've got agriculture, you've got, you know, obviously huge developmental yeah. pressures, all sorts of people who really uh, need to know by law, by regulation, the ecological impacts of stuff they're doing. So I bet that plays a big role in, in getting that kind of work, does it not? That's right. And it, there are two things. One is that the economy, I mean, we're, we're a nation here in Southern California, basically, in, in terms of GDP and activity. So the economy is such that there's always something going on. If it's not public money, it's private money. There's just the churn is huge, right? And so there's never a dull time for work here. Usually, I mean, sometimes there's a recession, but geez, it, it, everything just roars back. And so, and that goes for conservation work as well as development and everything else. Um, so yeah, compared to Rhode Island, you know, there's just a lot more going on. There's also the thing about CEQA and California environmental law in general. CEQA is the Environmental Quality Act uh, that the state passed in the 70s. And that lays out a lot of rules and regulations that then everyone must follow, whether they want to you know, build onto their deck in Malibu or put in a freeway or build light rail or, as you say, a wind farm, a solar plant. Everything needs to be in tune with the environment, or there needs to be some sort of mitigation that's developed that will, in theory at least, offset the impacts from that development. Sounds like it's been and continues to be a great career for you. That's really cool. Yeah. You also did a huge project, that uh, Important Bird Areas of California book or project that you did. Tell me about that. Yeah. So when I was at Audubon, I worked on this Nature Center project, but then um, I was really interested in Audubon's uh, network of sanctuaries and centers and just the potential I thought Audubon had for 
sort of developing a roadmap of bird conservation around California. And it was around the same time that this idea of important bird areas was gaining traction pretty much at a global level. And a couple different organizations, Bird Life and American Bird Conservancy, they were developing these important bird areas um, for different countries and regions. And I convinced my boss at the time to turn me loose and let me do this for California. And so they, I guess, couldn't think of anything better for me to do. So they let me do it. And I basically spent the better part of a year driving up and down the state with my uh, road atlas, my my topographical atlas. Mm -hmm. And I would sit down with the experts in each county and hand them a Sharpie and say, just start drawing areas on the map that you think are important for birds. And this was in 2002. The book was published in 2004. And 2002 was really before eBird or iNaturalist or anything. So there wasn't really a way to visually see what areas of the state were hot spots and um, all these things we now take for granted with eBird. No one had, I don't think, really put together this for California. And yeah, it was a blast. I, I not only got to know these people who have now become you know, friends and colleagues around the state, like Dave Shuford or up in the Bay Area, just a, a, a lot of interesting people. I was able to see some of these places and really communicate the importance with photos and descriptions and numbers that I think opened the eyes of a lot of conservationists and just general people in California to some of these great areas, like up in Modoc County, you know, east of Klamath, you know, Surprise Valley, for example. You know, most people haven't heard of Surprise Valley. Turns out they're nesting snowy plovers and sandhill cranes and all sorts of things. Um, sage grouse, lex, and been then down in the southeast with these microfill woodlands on the dunes of the Amargosa Dunes east of the Salton Sea are key for migrants in the spring. And so piecing together all the corners of California from a bird view, I think, was something that that I found just personally rewarding, and uh, you know the book was was really popular. We we sold a few thousand copies right when it came out, and it was just Very a great cool. experience. So today it's a website, so they've continued to update it and add to it, and you can go online and look at the IBA website now. Yeah, I, I checked out the website. It is very cool. I always tell people, if you know you're going to a general area and you want advice of some really cool places to go talk to a birder, I mean, yeah, they'll know. For sure. They will know the beautiful and sometimes just uh, birdie and not so beautiful. I'll know the STPs and the cemeteries, and the, uh, but they'll also know the, the spectacular places. Yeah. I've had it. You know, I do these birding tours. Um, I ended up setting up a website, Cooper Eco Tours. And I have clients who come from all over the world, Australia, Germany, England, uh, Bahamas. And uh, they're very interested. You know, some, have, some have just, some have lists. So some say, I want to see a Leconte thrasher and a condor and a mountain bluebird and a mountain quail. Mm-hmm. And I have it a day and a half. Um, some just say, just take me to cool places and just, let's go birding for two days. And those are really fun because then we just kind of go into the mountains we look at plants. We just kind of see what we see, and uh, and and it's it's interesting. You, you know, you as you say, it's like I think birders have a certain perspective on the landscape, and you can 
be delivered into any country and link up with a birder and really speak the same language. And when they take you up a mountain road, they know what you're going to ask about. And you know, they know what you're going to ask about. You know, we just sort of see the world in a really similar way. Yeah, it's fun. I'll, I'll, a couple of things along that line. Uh, a good friend of mine, Ken Brown, he, his wife and he were riding along and, uh, and he pointed out a couple of birds on wires and she said, I mean, they've been married for 50 years, said, do you always think about birds? Are they, are you, is it always something you're looking for? And he thought for a second, he says, yeah, I think so. I yeah. think so. Uh, and uh, along the same lines i i've tried i have a not a big world traveler but i've traveled some and and i tend to do the latter of what you suggest i'm i'm you know a lister like every you know most birders are listers but if i'm in a new place a new country a place i haven't birded before and and the choices are between driving a huge amount of distance and finding the seven endemics in that general area or just going birding with a top guide and seeing a nice variety of the birds and the spectacular places, I'll take the latter every time. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, my, my list may may be a couple of rare birds short, but boy, the experience is so cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's, it's funny. It's, it's, there's a lot less pressure too. Right. So I had a client from China who not only did not speak English, he was from mainland China um, he he came to photograph birds. You know they're very into right. bird photography right, yeah. there. Yeah, it's a competition amongst your friends, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And so he had to, you know, his secretary who was doing the communication before he he landed was like, he he needs to see um, spectacular birds and get photos of them. I'm like, I didn't really know what, what's where, spectacular. Yeah, what do you mean? Like, yeah, a rookery of great blue herons displaying like and so we ended up having it was it took about a half a day to going through the field guys okay what do you want to see it's like do you want to see woodpecker no we have woodpeckers in china okay uh hawks no we got we have those two Nobody wants warblers <laughs> no they're too small you can't really photograph oh, yeah, them hard to get a picture. okay it was a very it was the, my hardest it was my hardest tour he ended up breaking both of his cameras on the flight over because he put them in a duffel bag, wrapped them in blue jeans, and sent them through baggage claim. And it was they were about ten thousand dollars each. And we somehow found a a camera store owner in Culver City who took a look at them. He's like, "Well, we don't have these mounts yet. The, you know, Canon has not released these in the U.S. These are only available in China." Um, oh but he was able to sort of rig up through the the, the brackets he had on hand enough. Uh, material he had he had snapped the lens mounts and he was able to sort of re rebuild them and sort of refasten them and got enough electrical connection that he was able to use most of the functions of these uh lenses very cool yeah the guide the the guide whose services the the uh, most intimate needs are yes client (laughs) he had a horrible trip because we ended up it took a day and a half to fix his camera lenses and got you know he wasn't going to go birding without his camera so (laughs) that wasn't happening yeah sometimes uh, you just can't win sometimes i feel i i you know i like almost every birder now carry a camera with me a lot of times and and it's cool because you have pictures when you're done but sometimes i feel like it 
almost takes away from the experience. You know, you see yeah. a bird and you just want to drink it in yeah. and you look at it for a second and try to get a picture and then it's gone. And you say, gosh, I wish I'd look better at that bird, you know? Yes. It's that whole thing. Do you take a picture? Do you study it? And yeah. <laughs> so be it. Uh, so what projects are you working on now? Has COVID been a huge impact on your business? So do you work alone most of the time? I work alone and I work outdoors. So um, I'm almost never in contact with people in my normal course of business. Most of my clients I don't meet. Uh, we actually a lot I don't even talk to on the phone. We just email. They email, you know, what they need, and I email them back an estimate. And so it hasn't impacted anything. And I, and I will say that, I mean, psychologically, it's you know, like everyone else, it's sure. been difficult. Just. Uh, in in some ways, a lot of ways, but uh, business wise, uh, you know, it it it's it's just a crazy situation where, and we don't have to talk about COVID this whole time, but like, uh, it's a crazy situation where there are people whose businesses and lives have imploded, and um, at all levels of the economy, and there are people whose days are just the same as every other day, and like. My, you know, I've, you know, once a week here in Southern California, a crew of gardeners comes and mows the lawn and rakes the leaves. And these guys are here every week. Like they always have been. I mean, there are just some industries that are not affected by what's going on. So, you know, thank God my, and mine is one of them so far. This is one of the small, small businesses that is not going to be crushed by this. Good for you. Yeah. So far. (laughs) Another hat that you wear is as uh, an associate editor of Western Birds, the WFO publication. What does that involve? What 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 do you do there? Well, Western Birds uh, started as California Birds, and actually, we mentioned Guy McCaskey. He was, I think, one of the original um, founders of California Birds as a journal, and so now it's sort of um, expanded into covering uh, bird conservation and bird ecology of the Western U.S., Mexico. Uh, Hawaii. And uh, as a regional editor, I'm basically sent articles that uh, authors send in, and then I farm those out to reviewers or review them myself. And yeah, I I do a lot of paper uh, reviewing of of manuscripts. You know, I think you were looking at, and this is my fault, but uh, I have an old CV that's posted on my website, and I'm so bad at at, HTML that I and lazy that I haven't updated it. So my old CV doesn't have my new iteration of myself, which is in 2017, I went uh, back to grad school and enrolled in a oh, PhD program. Um, cool. Yeah, studying uh, urban bird ecology at, at UCLA. And just last week, I submitted my dissertation. And so as soon as they process it at, at UC, um, I will have a PhD and uh, congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. And so part of that has been sort of being reimmersed in academia. And now I'm, I'm definitely editing and uh, reviewing a lot more journal articles uh, these days. <laughs> so that's great. Uh, so you, uh, you've got, you are a lifelong learner for sure. <laughs> that's right. Just like the, uh, you know, your elder hostel brochure will encourage you to do. That's me. Yeah. That's great. That's that's beyond great. That's fabulous. Good for you. Good for you. So tell me more about this uh, PhD project. It was on urban birds, you said? Yeah, it was 
it's funny to talk about in the past tense, but I guess it's over. I'm no longer a student. Um, it it was really, uh, you know, I've always been interested in how birds deal with the city. You know, growing up in L.A., uh, going to college in Boston, you know, I do a lot of urban birding. Most of my birding is urban birding. And I noticed through the years that some birds were doing great and some birds weren't. And um, I wanted to sort of craft this Ph.D. into um, a way of of using my my experience through my life looking at urban birds, but also bringing in uh, modern data analysis techniques that I just haven't had any uh, excuse to learn until now. And so I had a couple different chapters. One was looking at historical uh, hawk and raptor nesting sites around my area of LA. We have this great uh, data set from National Park Service that happens to exist. And I got my hands on that and I revisited all these old sites just to see what species were thriving and whether they had shifted their territories into more urban areas or less urban areas over the years. And I looked at old breeding bird atlas data for another chapter, looked at eBird data and combined those to look at um, what traits of birds allow them to be more common in the city over time versus less common. And then my latest chapter, which I'm trying to get a manuscript together on, is looking worldwide at hawks to see which hawks and what types of hawks do well in cities and which don't. And that's more with an eye toward conservation, that unless we figure out what species don't do well in urban areas, we're going to lose those species because the the world is becoming more urban, more disturbed, um, and less wild. And so that has been an effort to, at least for hawks, just try to nail down what's going to do well and what won't. We had a speaker at my local birding club who works extensively on Cooper's hawks in oh, nice. the King County, Seattle area. It sounds like Cooper's hawks are one of the urban species that is just having no problem doing really, doing really well. Uh, yeah. And, and I, you know, obviously peregrines are urban canyons, so they're doing pretty well. And I read somewhere that goshawks are doing well in European cities. I, I don't know how, where I read that, but. That's right. No, you're right. Um, it, it's, it's funny. Uh, you know, we, we think of goshawk, like our goshawk is the bird of the North woods and we never yeah. see it in the city. Right. And mm-hmm. Cooper's hawk is the local uh, bird feeder hawk. <laughs> Um, but yeah, in, in Europe where they don't have a Cooper's hawk, they have a goshawk. Now, you know, genomically speaking, is that excipiter? Yeah. yeah, Is that, it's excipiter gentilis, but you know, what that has in common with the excipiter gentilis that's in Washington, I'm not sure. Um, clearly it's had a very different evolutionary trajectory in the last 50 years because yeah, they're, they're definitely becoming an urban bird in parts of Germany and elsewhere in Europe. Yeah, it's it's fun to hear about that sort of thing. Uh, so, in terms of work, what projects are you working on right now? Well, I got a call from uh, a state conservancy that was interested in evaluating over a hundred private parcels on the interface between uh, the city and Angeles National Forest, and so they. Uh, had me write a proposal to analyze each of these parcels in terms of its invasion by non-native species, 
its potential to support um, listed plants and animals, topography, fire history. And I'm just pulling that together for them. And so that's a good excuse, you know, with COVID, <laughs> driving out in these neighborhoods or fire roads and just sort of wandering around and taking a lot of pictures and taking a lot of notes. And I'll be pulling that together into a re- re- report for this agency, which will hopefully guide um, their conservation priorities out there. That's one of them. Maybe maybe you can keep them from building a bunch of homes that are going to burn down in the next while. Yeah, well, that's that's always that's always an issue here. Like, <laughs> it is. It is. So that's still going on. I mean, you know, and, you know, even if I say that, I got a call from a couple who recently bought two parcels of vacant land in Topanga, which is in the hills near LA, and they want to build a house. And I looked at them on Google Earth, and they're surrounded by intact chaparral on one side that hasn't burned in 40, 50, 60 years. They've got a little dirt road driveway in. And their house is at the end of a three-mile cul-de-sac, and <laughs> and I actually, you know, with these clients, like I, I, I'm frank with them, and I tell them my experience, and my experience is it's very difficult to get a house built in there. And would they consider buying an existing house? Um, not only is it going to make your life easier permit-wise, uh, just the impacts on the land sure. and your, your own your own health and survival. Um, you know, they're. The, the the landscape uh you know is getting more flammable and there's going to be a time i suspect when you're really not going to be able to just build your dream house surrounded by chaparral in the hills of california it's just people are just not going to stand for that anymore and just from a practical point of view and i told them straight up like i've been now working on this for almost 10 years and I don't think I have a client in that part of the hills that has started with raw land and has finished with a house. Wow. Yeah. It's it's very permitting between permitting and insurance. It's gotta be Yeah, yeah. And and my part, I'm a I'm a little cog in this wheel. I do a report that's gonna be a tiny fraction of your overall budget to get your house built. So I'm not (laughs) I'm not the last word on this, but just from my experience, I'll give them my you know, my best advice and we'll, you know, whether they take it or not, that's another matter. Yeah, that is, that is for sure. That is for sure. I'm a family doctor and I, uh, I give people advice and sometimes they take it and sometimes they don't. We're all salespeople in a certain way, you know? Yeah. It's funny with them, you know, with medicine, I think there are a lot of ethical questions and obligations that you feel. And I think like there are probably physicians, there are certainly environmental consultants that won't say anything like this they'll just take take your money and give you a report on your house but yeah i kind of feel like i'm a scientist and conservationist first and then i do this consulting so i can have a roof over my head (laughs) but it's not like i i i always dreamt of being a consultant (laughs) exactly Exactly. So what kind of birding most excites you? Are you more of a lister? Are you more of an experiential birder? Are you really like to travel or all of the above? You know, I love, yeah, I used to be a lister. I, you know, when I was in high school, I would, you know, I would call that RBA and drop everything and, and drive. And if it was going to, the sun was going down, I would drive faster. You know, I, I, I was a crazy lister. Uh, but since going to college and doing all these jobs in the field, I, my passion for listing has definitely waned. And now I don't 
go birding, birding that often. Um, I've gotten so into plants that I'm much more interested in finding, uh, you know, range extensions of rare flowers and uh, just learning the biogeography of an area more than uh, ticking. Although I will say with this new um, craze in birding your local patch, which you may have heard of this five mile radius challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I've gotten really into that. So I've, kind of got the five miles around my house wired um but i don't like this morning i just like i you know made home fries and bacon and just like sat around the house i did not go out birding i could have gone out birding but you know it's not it's funny it's like it's not a an addiction that it was when i was younger Mm -hmm. yeah i think all of us go through you know, different phases in our birding enthusiasm and interests, you know, yeah. I, I've, I, I'm a lister of, of course, but uh, I have to say my, my, the, the things on my bucket list are not to have a bigger list anymore. So much there to see the crazy thing. I mean, I want to go to the Platte river and see the Sandhill cranes. I want to go to a, a seabird rookery in Alaska and in uh, Newfoundland. I yeah. Wanna, I want to see those sorts of things. I want to go to some great hawk watches. Uh, you know, yeah, the spectacles. Yeah. That was the word I was looking for. I want to see the birding spectacles. It's funny. And I I respect that, but I, I it's not where my passion is. And I was going to say, the, the, what, it, what I like is going to a new area and waking up in that lodge room and hearing unfamiliar birds outside. And... Mm-hmm. That to me is like that. That is really like what drives me with birding, and I think that that kind of moment of discovery, where you go out in the courtyard or you go out on a trail and you don't know what anything is, and you're writing down your best guesses, but Mm -hmm. uh, you don't know until a couple days later, like that you've been wrong on half those things. Like I think that's really fun, and it's not anything you can do anymore, at least for me and. You know, Los Angeles. Yeah, like that's not happening for you. Yeah, yeah it's going to be. Yeah. So, you know, once we get back traveling again, you know, I've I've gone on orbits and just bought a plane ticket to somewhere in Mexico just to go. And, you know, you can't do that right now. And that I know a lot of birders love doing that and really miss doing that and some are doing like i think our friend john sterling is still doing that but uh getting around yeah i don't i don't think i don't think we'll be doing that for a while but i can't wait till that comes back it is fun uh you know the the it's a little bit of where's waldo yeah what the heck is that yeah and you don't have to get that far to do it you know i uh I think going to Cabo San Lucas and looking at the Cape District uh, thorn scrub down there is fascinating. And there are only a couple new birds uh, that you don't have in California. But the ratios are all different, and they're, the habitat, the landscape is different. They're all behaving differently, and the subspecies are a little different. I think that's really cool. It is fun. Uh, it can be frustrating, especially for me, tropical birding uh, you know, on my own. Uh, it can be super fun and super frustrating. You yeah. just get glimpses of all this color up in the trees. And you don't know what the heck you're seeing, and but so oh, definitely, 
you know, when I was at Audubon, we, I somehow got invited. I think no one else wanted to go, but I somehow got invited on this trip uh, by boat on a river in Guyana to visit this forest conservation logging combination program. <laughs> and they were building a, a ecotourism lodge and preserving a million acres and uh, sustainably logging other areas. But the upshot was it was day after day on a canoe in the rainforest, and I just stopped birding. I just couldn't, I couldn't take it all in. There was too much sound, too much, and, I, and, I, and not enough uh, sights of anything. And I knew that I was passing all sorts of ant birds that I'd never seen. But like, and I wasn't, it was frustrating a bit, but it was also like, that may have been like the turning point where I just kind of stopped being that kind of birder. And the things I remember are not birds. I mean, I remember some birds, the like, I think it's the Nakunda nighthawk. It's like one of these big nighthawks that zooms around the savanna. There was a, a sake monkey family kind of perched in a tree over the river. You know, little snapshots here and there. But it was sort of the first time I was in the tropics and like, I'm not even birding here. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing here, but I'm not birding. <laughs> you're just experiencing it for what it is. Yeah. And, and that feeling that you know you're not coming back there. Like, you're not going to be on a canoe going down that river ever again. Yeah. yeah. that Those are great life experiences, and uh, yeah. we're blessed to have had some of them. Absolutely, yeah. Very cool. So what's going forward for you? Uh, you just got your PhD. Is that going to open doors to different work or is that going to, you know, just solidify your credentials or was it just something you wanted to do? You know, it was really the latter. It, it was something I wanted to do. And I, I think going forward, you know, I'd love to have an academic job at a small college and be able to teach a little and research a little, but then, you know, uh, the news flashes, a lot of people would like that job too. So, you know, and with the COVID landscape, uh, you know, institutions are contracting right now. They're not expanding. So I'm actually, I'm fine doing the same thing. I love my current situation and it's, it's a fascinating job to have being an environmental consultant uh, on your own. You know, I don't have a boss. I don't have to go to meetings that I don't want to go to. And I think for me, it was just a way of enriching my life, learning, going deep in this subject. And I think a university environment is just, it's so unique and just going to stimulating talks and chatting with professors and, you know, you're giving them ideas and they're giving you ideas. Uh, it's something that you can't really do from your desk and yeah, I feel horrible for like the new grad students who are like in Zoom University and struggling yeah. through this crazy thing. But I think that if you can surround yourself with really smart people who are passionate about a lot of different things, uh, then you have a great life, you know? It sounds like you have a great life, Dan. Yeah. I, uh, I uh, have a lot of respect for people who can carve out a niche that works for them. Uh, they can make a living at, that they can do what they're passionate about, and uh, in general, be a positive force for the world. That's uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Congratulations on that. And 
soon to be Dr. Cooper. Right. Uh, uh, Don't jinx it. Uh, oh, okay. I'll take that back. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, what do you have to defend? Is it still uh, like it used to be where you have to defend your uh, uh, dissertation in a sort of formal way? Yeah, then that's called your 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 orals, your oral defense. And that I did about a year ago. So UCLA, okay. they kind of inverted a little bit. So you do that as you're finishing up, then you turn in your dissertation and get approved. Oh. So, yeah. Okay. So that's a, that's a, it's a, it's a slam dunk. You've got it made. I think, I think unless there's a, a typographical error uh, somewhere, I should be getting it. Yes. <laughs> Good for you. Well, congratulations. Thanks. Again. Uh, two last things to close up with. Uh, Post COVID, what's your first, uh, first trip? Where are you going? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I should have thought of that more because I, now I see you already had that on, in your questions. Um, you know, I, I had a trip planned that I, I canceled. It was like a 10-leg trip as part of this global raptor survey. I was going to go to um, the World Wilderness Conference in uh, Jaipur, India and uh, back in March. And on the way, I was going to hit Tokyo and Singapore and Taipei. And, uh, well, the world changed. So... I don't know if I'll be able to reconstruct that trip, but uh, India has you know, fascinated me uh, for a long time, uh, not just the birds, but the culture and the food and yeah, the, everything else about it, I think uh, would, would be something to see. So maybe I'll, maybe India is that, that's a little optimistic, but you know, I would take Cabo San Lucas again too. Yeah, that would work too. Yeah. That would work too. Yeah. My, my family and I went to Cabo uh, year after year and oh. just, oh my goodness, it was just such good memories. Really, really fun. And seeing, seeing a, you know, a, a crested caracara on every pole. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. And, and the thrashers. And it was just, yeah, good birding and good place to be. Yeah. And so, yeah. You'll do well either way. Yeah, exactly. Good for you. Uh, and uh, I always give my guests an opportunity to uh, uh, throw a bone to a cause that's important to them. Do you, do you have uh, uh, some a cause that people might not know about or maybe ought to think about? Oh, wow. You know, I was thinking about, you know, I was going to call some of my uh, <clears throat> wealthier friends and, and tip them off. But yeah, there's an outfit in Southern California, the Endangered Habitats League, EHL. And the fellow who runs it is actually a physician who retired 20 years or basically quit 20 years ago to save nature in Southern California that in areas that were sort of being overlooked by the big NGOs. And he has, in the style of David and Goliath, managed to save just these beautiful parts of Orange County and San Diego County where housing developments were literally being approved. Um, and so, yeah, EHL, it's, it's very lean, it's a lean and mean group, but it's incredibly effective and they just won a massive victory down in the Ote Mesa area near the border where development is still just churning up habitat for endemic plants and butterflies. And, uh, they would, yeah, they could definitely use your help. 
Well, that is great to hear. Yeah. Uh, I'll send me a link to their website. I'll put a link in the podcast notes and I write a blog post for each uh, episode and I'll make sure it gets in there too. That sounds like a great cause and maybe a future guest. Give me this guy's contact. Oh yeah, Dan would be great. Yeah. Sounds like an interesting guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you could talk medicine and uh, birds, sure. <laughs> sounds fun. Sounds fun. Dan, thanks so much for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. One of the things I love about doing this podcast is it puts me in touch with interesting people. I get to talk to people I otherwise might not have license to reach out to. And you have been uh, one of those people. I appreciate it. All right, Ed. Well, it was my pleasure. You know, we all like talking about ourselves, right? Um, but no, this was, it was really fun. And yeah, thanks for asking, asking these questions and giving me an opportunity. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Take care now. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, that wraps up the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 87 with Dan Cooper. I hope you enjoyed listening. And as always, I welcome feedback, either as a review or rating on the podcast platform that you uh, use or by comments on the breadbanner.com blog that adds supporting details to this episode. I do one of those every episode or by reaching out to me at at birdbanter on either Twitter or Facebook. Uh, but anyway, get me feedback. If you have guests you'd like to hear from, let me know who they are. If you have suggestions or comments, please let me know. So thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding, good day. <laughs>